continue on in our study of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll be focusing on verses 27 to 28, two verses. But for the sake of context, we'll begin our time reading, starting from verse 23. So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Receive now God's inerrant and sufficient word. We read, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Amen. This is God's word. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Oh, gracious Lord, as we look now to your word, we come boldly and in great confidence not by our own means, nor by our own strength or righteousness, for we have none, but we draw near because we have a great high priest who appeared not year after year like the priests of old, but once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, who entered into the holy places not made with hands, but stands right now in your very presence to intercede for us. O Lord, we pray that by the Spirit of God, you would now do a mighty work in this place, in this church, knowing that as your word goes forth, that it does not return void, but that it moves and goes and accomplishes all that you will and so desire. Build up the saints Save the lost. Reveal yourself through your word, we pray. And it's in the name of our beloved Savior, Christ Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. What happens when we die? What happens when we die? This is perhaps the oldest question that has ran through and visited every human mind from the very beginning of human history. Tacitus, the well-known Roman historian, and just to clarify, Tacitus wasn't a believer, but in being tasked to write the eulogy for his closest friend, he wrote the following. He wrote, If there be any habitation for the spirits of men, if great souls perish not with the body, Mayest thou rest in peace. In coming face to face with the reality of death, if was the best outcome that Tacitus could hope for. 
Uncertainty was his greatest certainty, in other words. And as we consider the words of Tacitus in light of our text that we just read together, we know that this couldn't be any further and more different for the Christian. In studying the book of Hebrews, there are a few names that come to mind whose works have been tremendously helpful to me in my studies. Just personally speaking here. And one of them is an English Baptist preacher by the name of F.B. Meyer. And I happened to stumble across his letter this week as I was preparing for the sermon. And within this letter, he wrote to his friend while lying on his own deathbed. Now, unlike Tacitus to his friend, F.B. Meyer, he wrote the following. He wrote this. I have just heard, to my great surprise, that I have only but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered into God's palace. And he writes, don't trouble to write back, for we shall meet in the morning. No ifs, no uncertainty, but great surety. You see, for Meyer, as one poet puts it, death was not the light of life extinguished, But death was merely the lamp put out and put aside before the dawn had come. Our passage tonight directly deals with this topic, this dark and most avoided topic of death. It addresses and answers with great certainty that age-old question of what happens when you die? What happens when I die? And I like to believe that Meyer had this specific passage in mind as he himself eagerly awaited to see the morning light of heaven, as he eagerly longed to see the face of his beloved. You see, the Christian answer to death is vastly different to any of those solutions offered up by the world. While there remains a great ambiguity for the world, there exists for us Christian great surety there exists great comfort. While there exists a great mystery for the world, there exists great clarity for the believer. While the world goes on about hoping in endless possibilities, it's to the Christian alone who finds hope in the one who has made all things possible through Christ. Well, shifting our attentions now to our passage here, there are two appointments which I would like for us to examine together today, this evening, uh, which will then serve as a, a sort of outline for us. First, verse 27, man's appointment. And second, verse 28, Christ's appointment. And again, I know there are a lot of people who like to write notes here, so let me just repeat that again. Our first point comes from verse 27, man's appointment. In verse 28, our second point, Christ's appointment. Beginning with man's appointment, verse 27, let's look down again together and read. We read this. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're rich or poor, strong or Weak, educated, or uneducated, we read here that 
It is appointed for men to die once. Each and every one of us here this night in this room has an appointment card with death. The word that the writer uses here for appointed can be further translated, if you want, as reserved with certainty or destined. We can say that it has been destined. You have been destined with great certainty that you will die. And the reason for why this simple fact is so important for us to hear, especially now more than ever in our day, is because we live in an age that is totally obsessed with living forever. Staying young and relevant forever. Finding any and every solution for a long and lasting and self-gratifying life. We live, I like to put it, as a fountain of youth obsessed culture. Where death has been made into such a taboo thing that many have pushed the subject of, of death as far as possible to the side. Far out of their mind. We don't like to think about death, do we not? We sure don't like to talk about death. But the Bible makes it clear as day here that death is coming. It's coming. And it's coming by appointment. Now the question here is who made this appointment? Because there are some of you who might be thinking, I, I did not make that appointment. I'm not trying to make that appointment. I still have a lot of things that I need to accomplish and do. I'm still young. There's still time. There's a lot of things that I want to do first. So, again, who makes this appointment? It's God. God is the one who has sovereign, sovereignly made your appointment with death. It's not fate. Not chance, not lifestyle choices or genetics, but it's God. We know this because Ecclesiastes 3, and you guys know this chapter very well. It's recited often here at this church. Ecclesiastes 3, it tells us that there's an appointed time for every event under the sun. A time to mourn and a time to laugh. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to be born and a time to die. And the writer continues by writing this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. You see, it's God who makes the appointment here. Now, if that reality doesn't hit you hard enough, let me make this even stronger. Not only does God make the appointment, not only does God make your appointment and writes them down in His divine appointment book, but it's God Himself who makes sure that you keep that appointment. In John 21, if you can recall this passage, Jesus, in dialoguing with Apostle Peter, the disciple, after Peter denies Him, and after Jesus resurrects, Jesus says to Peter, Most assuredly I say to you, Peter, when you were younger you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And he says to him, or we read, this Jesus spoke signifying by what death Peter would then glorify God. 
The word of God is unambiguously clear here. It teaches us that God who is in heaven is the same sovereign God who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, which includes the day that you were born and the day that you will go under the grave. We can say and know with absolute certainty that your death will not come a single day. It will not come a single minute early apart from God's appointed time for you. Nor will you live one second, one millisecond past that appointment. Beloved, the day of our death has been scheduled. It's been decreed and it's been ordained by the sovereign God Himself. This to say that there is no escaping this appointment. No matter how much you want to ignore it and push it away to the side, you cannot alter it. You can't postpone it no matter how much you might think you might have control over the situation. There is no such thing as rescheduling in God's office here. God has made your appointment and I assure you that He will be sure that you see it through. Now notice the nature of this appointment. We read it is appointed for men to die how many times? Once. Exactly, once. Not twice. Not three times. Not four times. Once. God has given to each and every one of us one life which will end in death. And that death that's been assigned to us will be a one-time event. And the key characteristic that should immediately draw all of our attentions here, given to death, is in its finality. There's no such thing as second chances. There is no such thing as trying again. It's not a video game. Meaning unbelief, unbelief is not the risk that you should be wanting to take here after looking at this passage. Unbelief is not the risk that you should be wanting to take here because it's not going to end well for you. It's a fact. The simple and obvious truth that we find here in verse 27, as plain as it might seem to you, should have a tremendous effect on each and every one of us. The fact that we're going to die, that Christ will see to it that it's accomplished on His time, and that it's going to happen once, this should, it should do something to us. And more than that, it should move something within us. For those who might be hearing all of this, you're taking it all in, you might feel every inch of your body pulling you away and trying to push it all away. And I beg you, do not do such a thing. Don't do it. Psalm 90, verse 12, we read, Teach us to number our days, O God, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, the failure to consider our days, to count our days, to go on ahead and ignore the reality of death is the exact opposite of what wisdom is. It's utter foolishness to ignore death, in other words. And I've heard it put it this way. 
Foolishness is thinking a lot about what matters little and thinking a little about what matters a lot. Now, in considering this, brothers and sisters, you must ask this question, what what is it that matters much to me in this life? Death matters a lot. Judgment and salvation matter a lot. What school you go to, what, when you get married, what job you have, how much money you make, how many follower, followers you have on your social media, that is little. It's small. It's insignificant compared to eternity. It matters little to the bigness of God. Now, if this was all that the Bible had to say here, and if the Bible stopped here at death, I believe that it would be enough to sober any sane person, any logical person up. It would wake them up right away. But the writer doesn't end here. We continue to read this. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Just as plainly as the Word of God communicates that each and every one of us has an appointment with death, we read here immediately following that we'll face judgment. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The righteous to a judgment of life and the wicked to a judgment of condemnation. John chapter 5. Just as death is promised to us all, friends, judgment also awaits right around the corner. And friends, if there's any subject If there's any other topic that's more taboo or unpopular in our day than death, it's judgment. The writer here isn't merely posing the question of, he's not saying, are you ready to die? He's not saying, are you ready to die? But rather, he's asking this, are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to stand trial before a holy and just God? Just as death is sure, there exists no ambiguity here in the final outcome from the judgment that's to come for us all. And it's this. There will either either be a hell for you to endure or a heaven for you to enjoy. There's only two options here. There's only two options here. And so I ask, which one is it for you? Where do you stand when it comes to that scale that spans eternity? God isn't only the one who appoints the time of death, but Scripture tells us in Revelation 20 that it's Christ who is Himself the very judge Himself. Friends, if you are not a Christian this day, And you go on about continually rejecting the free offer of salvation found in Christ Jesus. You may reject Him in the now, in the present, but there will come a promised day where you will have to face Him as your judge. The longer you delay, the more you will be storing up for yourselves God's wrath. It's inevitable. Jonathan Edwards, in his most famous sermon, Sinners in a 
in the hands of an angry God. He likens the wrath of God to a water dam. Let me just read this. He writes this. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not yet been executed. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more and more wrath. The waters are constantly rising. And there is nothing but the mere mercies of God that holds the waters back. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest and strongest devil in hell, it would be as nothing. In other words, if you are without Christ this evening, it is promised to you that on the day of judgment that you will not be able to stand. You will fall. You will fall. However, despite being surrounded by death and condemnation, it's here that we find, if we take a step back and, and we examine the whole of the epistle of Hebrews, it's here, that where, it's here where we find the most wonderful of news. That the judge who has scheduled for each and every one of us an appointment with death is also a priest. Hallelujah. If you would but look to and trust in the finished work of Christ, He Himself will be for you a refuge for that day. He'll not only save you from death, He'll not only shield you from condemnation, but He will ultimately, hear this now, save you from Himself. For those of you who have yet to trust and follow Jesus, I must ask you, how does this verse sit with you? How does it sit with you knowing that there will come a day where all your thoughts, your words and feelings and actions are going to be exposed like an open book and you'll have to stand there completely liable for each and every one of your sins. Knowing that the smallest of sins is far enough to sink you down into the deepest and darkest pits of hell. And so again I ask, what will you do with the mountain of sins that lie upon your breast? Oh unbeliever, you must understand that once death comes and your probation in this life is over, there is no such thing as trying again. You'll either die with Christ as your righteousness or you'll die with Christ as your judge. Death is coming. Death is coming for you, and that day to this very second has been appointed by God. Time is ticking here. As you listen to these words, time is ticking. And that moment of death is approaching closer, closer, sooner and sooner. 
And if you are at this moment failing to, cons- failing to consider this sobering reality of death and judgment, you are in the full, in biblical sense, a fool. That's foolishness. And so I ask you again, are you prepared to die? Again, hear that very closely. I'm not asking you, do you want to die? I know a lot of you say, no, I don't want to die. But I'm asking, are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to keep that appointment that's been sovereignly ordained? So while the world goes on about wishing what death will be for them, the word of God here is clear. He has spoken. And so I implore you, don't bank on what you and the world hope death might be. But you must heed the warnings revealed through God's word. Beloved, there is only one way to live. And just as there's only one way to live, there is only one way to die. And there's only one way that we must face judgment. And that's by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. To be clothed, to be, to be wrapped in the warmth of his righteousness. To have our sins forgiven by the power of his blood. Now for those of you in here perhaps who've been with us for some time now. I know there's some of you out there. Attending service after service yet never truly repenting. I hope that you do not for a second believe that you have within yourself the authority to come to Christ whenever you so please. It doesn't work like that. To think like that and to believe that is a very dangerous thing to believe. And oh, how I've met too many people who think like that. Who believe this about themselves. Thinking, I'll just come, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to do everything that I want. And then right when I think I'm going to die, I'll trust in Jesus. It doesn't work like that. That's not love. These are the type of people who use and abuse the thief on the cross as an excuse to delay more and more their coming to Christ. Rightly did J.C. Ryle respond to this kind of thinking by writing, Yes, look at the thief on the cross, he writes. But notice that there's only one who repents. God only put one there on the cross who repented and that to give everybody hope. But he only put one on the cross so that we would not be so presumptuous. It's utter foolish to believe that God will give you a long life so that you might repent at the very last second. That's not promised. Life's not promised, but death is. Today is the day of salvation for death is looming right around the corner. It's going to come when you least expect it. Oh friend, do not delay. Do not put it off any longer. Don't defy God's grace and mercy as it comes to you through this ministry, as it comes to you through this text of Scripture. You must know that God is in no way obligated. Now hear this. God is in no way obligated to allow you to hear this message again. You ever think like that? For some of you listening to this right now, this may be for you the very last time God allows you to hear this warning. That this coming, judgment is coming 
And so God, through His Word, is saying, repent. Turn and trust in the Son. Trust in Jesus Christ. Shifting now from man's appointment to Christ's appointment, we read here, And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment, verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. The main point of this whole section can be summarized in that one word, once. Everything that moves along within this epistle moves and points toward that climactic crescendo found in that one word, once. Everything from Jesus' superior priesthood to the better covenant, to the better tabernacle, the better lineage, everything works perfectly together to point to the fact That Christ is both the once for all priest and sacrifice of God. We've studied this. He's both the offerer and offering. And so again, we find this theme of once, the word once, continue right into verse 28. That Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. But what's interesting here? And how the writer utilizes the word offered in the Greek is written in what we would call the passive voice. This to say that the point that the writer is trying to make here is that the action that we're studying here was done to the subject. It's a passive. Meaning the point here isn't that Christ made an offering. Although that's true, Jesus did say, no one takes my life, but I lay it down on my accord. It's true. But the emphasis here falls specifically on what, on the fact that Christ was offered. He was offered up. The focus isn't necessarily on what Jesus does, but rather on what Christ was designated to do. In other words, just as man is destined, or as we've studied, appointed to, to die and face judgment, God appointed Jesus to be offered up. Before the foundation of the world, the Son had been appointed by the Father to be the man of very man. Divine yet fully clothed in human history or human flesh. In weakness of humanity yet without sin in that to enter into human history so that He might be offered up once for us. Jesus was appointed by God to become an offering to bear, as we read here, the sins of many. And church, it is this very appointment given to the Son where we not only find the whole point of the incarnation, but the very heartbeat of the gospel message that we preach. The whole point of why Jesus came into this world is encapsulated in that phrase to be offered up once to bear our sins. This is the very crux of the gospel message, is it not? This is the message that we must never ever stray from preaching at this church. Recognizing that 
any so-called gospel message that fails to mention the ultimate purpose that God had appointed His Son into the world to bear our sins is nothing more than a sham of a gospel. Now quickly following, right after this, we come to what it feels like an abrupt transition. We read, and He will appear a second time. As we just noted and as we've read and studied throughout the the weeks past, we've read and we read here once, once, once that Christ would offer Himself once, that He would suffer once, that He would appear once at the end of the ages, that He would bear the sins of many once. And now as we come to this portion of text, we read here standing in stark contrast that Christ will appear twice, a second time. Now, there are two reasons for why this contrast is so significant for us today. First, notice that Jesus' second appearing is in direct connection to verse 27. The first time Jesus came was for salvation, but the second time, judgment. And what's interesting here in this little detail that we find here is when the writer adds this, he, he writes, he will appear a second time apart from sin. Or you can translate it as not to deal with sin. The reason being, as the writer is established over and over again, and here he is doing the same thing, he's establishing the fact that sin had already been perfectly dealt with. That sin had been completely paid for, taken away and covered with Jesus' first coming by nailing it to Calvary's cross. Thus, the reason for Christ's second coming is not to make atonement for sins, but for what? We read here, for salvation. Salvation for whom? We read to those who eagerly wait for Him. Christ is coming to consummate the fullness of salvation. All of the benefits that Jesus achieved for us through His death to be ours in the fullest of sense. Truest of sense when he returns. And this gift of salvation is not offered up for the whole world to take. It's not a free for all. But we read that it's solely for those who eagerly wait for him. Those who desperately long for him. And so there's another question here for us, isn't there? And the question is this. What? Are you eagerly waiting for? What are you longing for? Are you waiting for Christ or are you waiting for something else? Do you long to be with your Savior or rather do you long to find a wife or a husband or have children or a new job, a better salary or a better situation in your life? You name it, fill in the blank. If not Christ, beloved, whatever it is that you are waiting for, it falls. It is absolutely insignificant. Now as we draw our time to a close together tonight, there may be some of you asking, well, how can I know that my sins are then covered? I feel it. I feel that sin. I feel 
I know that I'm a sinner. How can I know with absolute surety that I will be safe at the judgment? And the answer is provided right here in our text, laid out plainly and simply. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? You can know that you're eternally secured and your sins paid by how you answer that very simple question. Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you long to be with Jesus? Notice the writer doesn't make any mention here of any external rights. He makes no mention of duties or responsibilities. He doesn't write that Christ will return a second time for salvation for those who go to church. There's people who believe that. There's family members that believe that. He doesn't write the salvation, that Christ will return a second time for salvation for those who serve in the church, for those who pray before a meal or bedtime, or for those who've memorized a few Bible verses. But it's simple. And it's this. Christ is coming for those with a disposition of faith that manifests itself in a deep longing to be with God. Do you long to be with God? So my plea to you this night is the same plea that I make night after night when I get the chance to preach here. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. Look to Him and trust in Him. Why? Because you have an appointment with death. You have an appointment with death and right after death, judgment. We must all recognize this very sobering truth while we can before it's too late. Though the Word of God is sure to tell us that death and judgment are inevitable, it's inevitable, can't avoid it. We find that in the good news of Christ, that sin is not. You can avoid it. Sin can be covered. There's still time and the time is now. That is, if you would but come to Christ, so come to Him. Believe in Him, trust in Him, and follow Him, worship Him, obey Him, recall the great promises found solely in Him, and that so you might in all eagerness wait for Him and look to Him. And friends, it's only then, it's only then you'll be able to sing as we're about to sing in a few moments in the fullest and truest sense. When with the ransomed in glory, His face, my Savior's face, I at last shall see. Till be my joy through the ages to sing of His love for me. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, O Lord, death comes for us all. It is unavoidable. It is a fact of life. It is how You've designed it. It is the fallenness of our reality or reality of our fallen nature, and it draws to us closer and closer, each passing second serving to us as a sobering reminder that we're not fitted for this world but for another. And Lord, we come confessing that we far too often found ourselves more earthly minded than heavenly far too entangled with the cares of this world more than being engaged in the business of our Father. As we've all been appointed to death, 
We pray for those who are unbelieving, that they would this very night go to their appointment, that as they go to their appointment to meet with their great physician, that they would know that He came not for those who are well, but for those who are poor and needy, those who are wretched, deeply sick in sin. And so we pray for this church that you would continue to do the mighty work that you have already begun, that by the power of the Spirit that we might be here for you in all true senses, a pillar and buttress of truth, as we defend your truth, preach your truth, live out your truth, and that for your glory and praise. We pray all these things in the once and for all Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.